I invite the rest of you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 14. Or, excuse me, Romans chapter 12. I'm getting a little eager. We read from Mark 14. We're in Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish up this chapter today as we study God's Word. And I just looked. That's page 812, if you just got a Bible from us this morning. I want to begin by reading to you a historical account and having this be the introduction to our study together. Joan Trunchfield is a woman unknown to us. But on February 19th, 1556, Joan Trunchfield, having spent five and a half months in jail, was burned to death in a small town in England. She was burned to death because she believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and promoted it. She was a wife and a mother of several small children. Not only was the execution a top-down decision from the Queen of England, it was overseen and administered by those in her community. They were paid for their quote-unquote services. Apparently, public records still show today the cost of such things as the stake she was tied to to be burned, the kindling that was transported as well as what we would call today mileage. Those who hauled the goods in, those who traveled back and forth for her trial, they were paid for their travels. Now, during that time in history, hundreds of Christians were martyred, were killed. But when you say hundreds of Christians were martyred, they were killed, thousands were persecuted, it's not very personal. And so we still have lists on record of their names. And so I read one of their names to you here this morning with the exact date when she was burned at the stake because she believed that she could be in a right relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Joan Trunchfield. Now I'm going to ask you to try to put yourself in the position of her husband. What would you have been feeling? What would you have been sensing if you were Joan's husband? Or what if you were one of her children? Your mother was going to be burned at the stake because she believed that Jesus rescues us from the penalty of our sin and Jesus alone. We don't know if her mother and father were alive, but maybe we could think of it in those terms as well. What if you were her mother? This is your daughter. What if you were her father? This is your daughter being killed. Now it becomes a little more personal. And the reason I use it as an illustration today is because we are going to talk about how we as Christians deal with those who are our enemies. How do Christians respond to those who are their enemies? What would your advice be to her children? What would your advice be to her husband, her mom, her dad? What would be the advice uh, that you would need to be hearing from the Bible, from God's Word during that time? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So we'll be doing that in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at the final verses of Romans 12. If you're taking notes this morning... You can write down three dimensions of Christian love. We're going to look at three 
dimensions or three different angles of Christian love as it relates to how we, if we're Christians, are supposed to respond to our enemies. And that will be what we're going to talk about this morning in the last three verses of the 12th chapter chapter of Romans. Now, if you're just joining us today, and some of you are, uh, you can write down one, two, three. If you've been here with us throughout Romans 12, it's actually part of a bigger study on love, Christian love, and you're going to need to, ready to be confused? (laughs) You're going to need to write down 14, 15, and 16, (laughs) because there have actually been 16 different dimensions, and that's actually not that confusing, I don't think. So if you're just joining us, one, two, three, if you've been here week in and week out, you're a notebook kind of person, and you say, it's not one, two, and three, pastor, it's 14, 15, and 16, I grant you that. And uh, what we're doing is looking at how Christian love is to look. How do we see things as Christians, as we're supposed to love people? Earlier, we see how we're supposed to love all different kinds of people, our friends, uh, those who are with us, if you will. But here in these last verses, it's how we're supposed to love those who don't love us. It's very practical for us because the fact of the matter is not everyone loves us. And so we need to know what God would want us to think and believe and act, uh, how He would want us to act. So number 14 or number 1, gospel love or Christian love uh, is non-avenging. Non-avenging. I'm trying to limit the outline to one words. And so one word, I'm just using hyphens now. Um, But it's non-avenging. Let's go ahead and read in the Bible what it says in verse 19. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, so he's writing to Christians, Never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. What's another way we might word that just in case we don't understand what he means? Don't seek revenge would be the idea. Don't take justice into your own hands. That's the idea of never avenge. Don't try to get even. Don't try to seek justice by your own measures. Don't seek revenge yourself would be the idea that he's getting at here. Again, writing to Christians. Now you might say, but what does this cover? Well, that's almost the wrong question. It's what doesn't it cover? It's purposely very broad and inclusive. Never avenge, Christian. Don't seek revenge, even when wrong is done to you. Now, this is hard for us. This is hard for us because we have a sense of right and wrong in our hearts. We've been made in the image of God, and and we want justice, and that's not wrong. That's right to, to sense that and have that desire. But it's not up to us to play judge. So we have to be careful. So if you're like me and you like to watch 24 and you're a, 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 a fan of Jack Bauer, you've got to be careful. Jack Bauer is admirable on the television show because he seeks justice. And you watch him and you say, no one is doing the right thing in certain cases, and he finally did the right thing. I'm so glad. I am too. But he's not supposed to be our model. Jack Bauer, the judge, the jury, the executioner, right? We've got to be careful and say that's admirable what's happening there as justice is served, but he's not my role model because I'm a Christian and I have not received justice from God. I received mercy from God. And so I want to try to be like that. We have these sayings that we like so much, like I don't get mad, I just get what? 
I just get even. You know the saying. We like that kind of saying. That's t-shirt slogan kind of sayings. Or that famous theologian, Alfred Hitchcock, who was not a theologian at all. I'm just being funny. He said, revenge is sweet and not fattening. <laughs> and we say, yeah, we want revenge. We want justice. And, and again, please hear me right. There's something good about having that desire. But we have to be careful that we don't try to be the ones that bring it about. Because that's not our role. And so he says, beloved Christians, do not avenge. Do not do payback for wrong that's done to you. That's all he's really getting at. And verse 19 tells us why. Also, if you keep reading in verse 19 of Romans 12, it says, but leave it to the wrath of God. This is very helpful for us to see. Because if you're going to let injustice go and you're not going to seek justice yourself, it's pretty tough to go to sleep at night knowing that injustice has been done. So how do we deal with it? And he says, knowing, having confidence, as it says right there, leave it to the wrath of God. This helps you to sleep at night. This is not up to you. When people wrong you, it's not up to you to seek justice. That's God's business. That's what God does. His vengeance or His wrath. That's what He does. Now, just as a, as a, as a footnote, uh, a digression, um, as an aside, uh, some of you are thinking, I didn't know God was this kind of God. Um, and, and I'm here to remind you that you, you might want to keep reading the book. He's a just God. That means He's a God who does bring about justice. That means He is, in fact, a God of wrath, a God of judgment, where we get justice. And so hold on to your hats. If you're going to read the Bible, you see it all over the place. You see it all over the place. And as a matter of fact, Christianity doesn't even make any sense if God is not a just God, right? Because... It is on the cross where Jesus gives himself where we see justice because the Father pours out his wrath on his perfect Son because the Son is dying in place of everyone who would ever believe. This is basic Christianity. The Apostle Paul, writing Romans, knows this. And so Romans starts with wrath of God. You say, wait a minute, I thought Romans was all about the gospel. It is. It's all about the good news. But you don't understand good news unless you understand the backdrop, the, 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 the dark veil of bad news. And Romans 1, chapter 1, after the first 17 verses, which are introduction, in verse 18, which is really the very first topic addressed, the wrath of God is revealed. You've got to understand that. So again... Remember, wrath is biblical. God is wrathful. The cross reminds us of that. His wrath has been satisfied for everyone who would ever believe. And you know what? As evil is done to you, and you want to return the favor, as we might say, you've got to remember, you need to know that God is a God of wrath. And that's God's business to do justice, not your business to do, to do justice. If we don't even know God is a God of wrath, then or judgment, 
and we certainly will try to take matters into our own hands. Years ago, a Christian noticing that so many Christians were not talking about wrath ever and therefore not understanding the gospel, not understanding the cross, not understanding Jesus, said this, A God without wrath brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross. You see, these doctrines are very, very practical for us. I've been wronged. How do I keep myself (laughs) from retaliating. I need to remember that God is a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. And so I can not retaliate. So it becomes very helpful. Well, let's put that aside aside. And let's keep moving. Getting back to verse 19 of Romans chapter 12. It goes on to underscore this because in verse 19 it goes on to say, for it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's not very hard to understand. That's God's business. That's what God does. So it's not my role to play God, to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. So when people do evil against me, or they do evil against you, You've got to remember to let God be God. And don't climb up on that throne and play God yourself. That's what God does. That's His business. So let God be God. Now here's a question for you. We're trying to get, let's get deep here and really think about what this looks like. My question is, how does God show judgment? And I suppose there's a lot of different answers, but there's at least two main ways that God shows judgment that we can keep in our minds as we're being persecuted or slandered. How does He do that? And I at least want to highlight two ways that He does that. One way is He shows His judgment through government, through human government. And you say, that's a stretch. How did you ever come up with that? Romans chapter 13. He doesn't do this perfectly through human government because human government isn't perfect, oftentimes corrupt, oftentimes flawed, always flawed to a degree. But in the short term, to a degree, God is managing the injustice, if you will, through human government. We're going to get to Romans 13 in the days ahead, but let's just take a a peek at it. Look at Romans 13.4. He carries the same idea into Romans 13.4. He's talking about uh, the governing authorities, Uh, And I don't want to try to say everything here about that. We'll get to that in the days ahead. But in verse 4, in the second part of that verse, he says, For he, speaking of the governing authority, is the servant of God, an avenger. That's our word for this revenge idea, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Huh. That's helpful. God uses human government, even though it's flawed, to manage the injustices to a degree, at least in the here and now. So when somebody does something horribly wrong to me, even though I want to do revenge, and I want to do an eye for an eye, it's not my personal right to do that. I'm playing God when I do that, and I need to know in the here and now, God uses even human government to do that. And we'll talk a lot about that when we get to Romans 13. 
I've got to let them do it. Now, there's another way that God shows His judgment, and that's when Jesus returns. Okay? At the end of everything, when Jesus comes back, all of these things that make us upset because they're unjust, they're unfair, they're unrighteous, there's a day coming when Jesus is going to make it all right. And He will make sure everything is settled in the end. And so what we want to do, we'll look at a couple of verses in a second. We need to remember that. Let government do what government's supposed to do, even though they don't always do it. But ultimately, I'm trusting in the fact that where there's injustice, how do I deal with injustice now? Makes me mad sometimes. Makes me angry. I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands. No. Jesus is going to do that someday. Two passages you could look at, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. You don't necessarily need to turn there. I'll read them now. But in Romans 2, 5, it says, speaking to unbelievers, it says they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous or fair or just judgment will be revealed. So ultimately, we're waiting for God to do it Himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. You, say, you might be saying, I never thought about this stuff before. It's all very logical. It might be new to you, but it's all very logical that we don't take justice into our own hands. We trust God for that. He Deals with it in the here and now through government. Ultimately, it's going to be through Jesus. And you know what? When people slander you, this is very practical. More than likely, no one in this room will be martyred for their Christian faith. It could happen. It does happen. Not so much in this country. Right now. But there's everything in between. Somebody speaking wrongly about you, unjustly, maligning your character, behind your back talking, that goes on all the time. People doing evil things, that's kind of in the middle, actually acting upon them to the ultimate end, which would be martyrdom. When people do evil against you, what are you remembering? What's natural is we want to retaliate, right? I'm going to get my pound of flesh. I'm going to do what they did back to me. I sure feel better. <laughs> That's not acting like a Christian. Because God didn't do that with us. He gave us a gift, and we'll talk about that. You've got to remember, He uses governing authorities to deal with some of these issues or other kinds of authorities, but in the end, ultimately, it's, it's, it's Jesus taking care of business. I'm going to trust Him for that. This could get so bad you might find yourself like those who are described even in heaven who have been martyred. Listen to their cry. It's intense. They cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. They're pleading with God. Listen to these words. They say, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. And, and they're glorified. They're in heaven. They have no mixed motives. And they're still saying, God, when are you going to bring vengeance? So it's not wrong to have this happening. So we wait. We wait. 
It's the work of God. Can you imagine what it, if, if, what it would be like if Christians actually took this to heart? If I actually took this to heart? Vengeance isn't mine. It's God's. We would have a lot better reputation. <laughs> We'd have a lot more peace in our church and churches. It's not up to us. This is a radical worldview changer. We leave it to God. Well, let's move on now to something related, and that would be a second uh, gospel angle or take on gospel love or Christian love. Number 15, if you're uh, a long-timer, and that's... I tried to come up with one word again. I couldn't do it. Enemy helping. Let's use another hyphen. <laughs> Christian love. doesn't seek revenge, but it actually helps enemies. This one is going to be tough. The Holy Spirit's going to need to help us to apply this one because this isn't natural at all. Look at verse 20 of Romans 12 where it says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him rat poison. (laughs) It doesn't say that. (laughs) But that's what we want to do sometimes. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Try to explain that To the mother, to, 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 to the husband of the woman who was just martyred. Try to explain that to the sons and daughters of the woman who had just been martyred. Don't take matters into your own hands, but I do want you to do this. I want you to caringly, affectionately meet their needs. That would, be, that would take a super, supernatural act of God. And that's kind of the point. We don't act like we would act otherwise because we've been forgiven of a great debt of our own sin. And as I kept saying last Sunday, we live under the shadow of Calvary's cross and we act differently. We act differently. Let's actually help them. How about when people slander you? And try to undercut you because it's going to help them get ahead maybe. How can you thoughtfully, lovingly meet their needs? It's just a radical thing. We can understand it. We know exactly what he's talking about. It just isn't something we would necessarily like to do. Showing deliberate acts of thoughtful kindness when they deserve something else. Now, think about this, though, from a Christian perspective. What's another word that we use in Christian circles in in the Bible? It's used often. When you give something to someone they don't deserve. It's the word grace, right? That's what grace means. The Bible teaches that we are in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus' work on our behalf because of God's grace. Grace means unearned favor. Christians say that all the time, and that's good if you can say that. Okay, grace means it's a free gift. It's unearned favor. And you know what? That's what we're trying to do here. We're giving gifts to our enemies like God gave us a gift. But let's even improve the definition as I've had a tendency to want to do. And I'm not trying to criticize you. If you say grace means unmerited favor, good job. But let's even try to improve on it a little bit. 
It's not that you were doing nothing and everything was fine and God gave you a gift. That would be unmerited favor. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned. We've all rebelled against God. So actually a better definition for grace from a biblical perspective, like from Ephesians and from Romans, it's demerited favor. Because we're actually in the red. We're in the negative on the opposing side. And he gives us a gift. How about this? We're actually in the enemy status. Like your enemies, you're supposed to give them what they don't deserve. They're not neutral. They're against you. This is very Christian. Because we weren't neutral. We were rebels in God's creation. And yet he gave us the gift of his son anyway. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Just as a reminder, all of this that we're seeing in Romans 12 is assuming that we have a really good memory and we're remembering what we saw in Romans 5. This is why the gospel is so practical for us, even in our Christian living, not just for our becoming Christians, but in in our Christian living. And when I say the gospel, just for clarity's sake, what I mean, it's good news. It's the good news that God doesn't give us what we deserve He gives us a free gift, and the gift is forgiveness of sins, eternal life, reconciliation with God. Because Jesus came and obeyed the law perfectly, Jesus died a sinner's death, even though he never sinned to pay for our sins, to atone for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead for everyone who would ever believe so that we could be reconciled to God. That's what I mean by when I say gospel. It's good news. Well, the good news isn't God saw how good we are, and then he gave. The good news isn't that he saw that we were just zero, not good or bad, and he gave his son. The gospel is the good news that while we were still sinners, Romans 5.8 says, rebels, Christ died for us. Remember that when you're dealing with your enemies. But go ahead and see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Romans 5.10 says, for while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And if you go back up to chapter 5, verse 1, that's where he says at the end of that verse, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mention all of that because we need to remember that passage when we're hearing what we're hearing in Romans 12. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If your enemy's thirsty, give them something to drink. In other words, meet their needs with thoughtfulness and care and concern and love. And you're going, what? You're going to do that because you remember the gospel, the gospel that Christ gave himself for you when you were an enemy. See, now what we're trying to do as Christians, having experienced God's love, is we're trying to imitate God. We're trying to do what he would do, what he did for us. So here I've got these people who are against me, maligning my character, saying bad things about me, insulting me. What's the Christian thing to do? Demerited favor. I'm going to actually give them a gift because that's what God did for us. We were against him, opposed to him because of sin. And he gives us the gift of his son, Jesus. This is our calling. But you're not going to understand that, and I'm not going to understand that unless we understand gospel truth. Otherwise, we're going to start taking matters into our own hands. Justice. Oh, no, no. 
I'm not going to take the time to go back there, but this is, this is really what Romans has been getting at. Remember, I'll say it one more time today. Romans 1 to 11, the first part of the book is about all that He's done for us in Christ. And now He's calling us to live in light of that. We live like different people. We have to keep remembering what He did for us. Otherwise, what we see here won't make any sense. Won't make any sense. Now, he gives the rationale for this, and then we'll move on to number 3 or number 16, whichever one you have. But the rationale is in verse 20 also. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly what that means. Try to study hard. Try to study original languages. Um, Paid a lot of money for education. (laughs) I don't know exactly what it means. Two major interpretations by people who are very careful and thoughtful with the Bible. And uh, I'll give you the two and uh, some strengths just so you can understand it. Now, I know the one that appeals to my flesh. You know the one too, right? By doing this, it will heap burning, scolding, fiery coals on top of their head that'll burn them. Ugh, right? I like that interpretation. <laughs> And that might be right. Uh, The way this phrase is used in the Old Testament, that's how it's used. It's used for judgment quite often. Could be. And the reality is in the end, these good things that have been done for unbelievers that they keep rejecting, keep rejecting, keep rejecting is actually going to make it worse for them. It will be. Jesus said it will be worse for you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, then it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day. So the more you receive, the more accountable you are. Another way to look at it would be to say, as some ancient Egyptian writings have indicated, this is actually a way of symbolizing repentance. People talk about having coals heaped upon their head and there's conviction and it's a symbolic way of talking about something that's very convicting and it brings about a change of heart. It brings about repentance. And so uh, it's difficult to know for sure. I think the second one seems to fit the context better because this doesn't seem to be about us doing things to get even. It seems to be about us doing things to honor God showing love for people, and you know what? This would be great if it led to their repentance. I wouldn't die for either interpretation. I'm glad my salvation doesn't depend upon it. Both would be theologically true. Let's stick with the second one for now. Think about it. By you not seeking justice, leaving that to God, and by you showing thoughtful acts of kindness toward those who are evil toward you. God might use it to bring about their repentance. God might use that to bring a change of heart because you didn't return the favor. And that would be very loving for us to act in those kinds of terms because we remember that we were once God's enemies. And by the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, we're not anymore applying the work of His Son. We don't seek vengeance. I have an illustration that uh, is not one we can relate to easily, uh, but then we'll talk about some of those. 
1998, I was at a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, probably the first and last one I'll ever go to. Um, it was, you know, minutia about minutia about minutia, um, kind of interesting. It was in Danvers, Massachusetts, and uh, the brainiacs of the world were there. Um, they let me in on a free pass or something. <laughs> so we were there, and there was a man there presenting a paper named Clark Pinnock. And Clark Pinnock has died this last year. Uh, Clark Pinnock um, abandoned the faith um, before this meeting in 1998. Clark Pinnock is, do you, he's, a, he's a heretic. He's a false teacher. He denies the basic truths about God. He promotes something called open theism. It's just a sad state of affairs. Clark Pinnock was um, brilliant intellectually, but socially about as backward as you could imagine. You know, his glasses were about this thick um, and about this wide, and his hair was down to about here. And uh, when he read his paper, I was in a very small room where he read his paper. I just wanted to go and kind of see and, and, and hear him. And, and, and he would read his like this. It's bizarre. My friend Dick Mayhew, who was the president of, or excuse me, the dean of Master Seminary, told me the story that when they were both there getting off the elevator, these, these men would be theological arch enemies. Okay, one for the truth about God, one against it, and writing vociferously. He said they both got off the, air, uh, off the uh, elevator. And he said literally Clark Pinnock walked off the elevator and walked into the wall. And he did not know how to find his hotel room. It was all taking place in a hotel. He didn't know up from down. And so Dick Mayhew took him by the hand and helped him find his room and made sure he got all checked in and comfortable. And I'm thinking I would have checked him into the dumpster <laughs> apart from God's grace because of what he was going to promote at this conference. He was an enemy of the cross. Dick Mayhew did a better job than I would have remembering that he himself was an enemy also once. And what you want to do is you want to show Christian love and compassion to everyone, even your enemies. doesn't mean you don't disagree. Paul's going to do that, by the way, strongly, even in Romans. But to show personal care and concern helping to meet their needs even though they're against you. Now, that was a great illustration because it makes us all feel pretty good because we don't run in those circles. But you know what? You run in your circle where people do wrong things against you. And if you're a Christian, you know all about that because you did wrong things against God. And He's forgiven you He's reconciled you. He's made peace through the blood of His Son. And now you're trying to be like Him. Not to earn your way, because you don't have to earn your way. You don't have to, pay, you don't have to atone for your own sins. Christ has already done that. That's what makes it grace. And so, in all seriousness, we take it out of the evangelical theological society, and you take it to your office, you take it to your place of business, 
You take it to your classroom. You take it to your family reunions. You take it to your in-laws. You take it wherever you need to take it. Take it wherever you need to take it. Now let's wrap up. Number number three, third, Christian love. Or number 16, if you're looking for the longer outline. Christian love, gospel love. Another dimension is evil overcoming. It is evil overcoming. Verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil. This makes sense. He's going to tell us this because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's got evil all around us. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a promise. Jesus said, woe to you when all speak well of you. Broken world, sinful people around me. So what do we do? Well, what we want to do is we want to return the favor. But he says right there in that verse, do not be overcome by evil. And what would that look like? What does it look like? It's interesting how he personifies evil as if it's some sort of person that's going to overcome you and like jump you. Don't, don't, don't be overcome by it. What, what would that mean? In our context, it would mean returning the favor. Evil is done against you earlier in our context. Don't be overcome by evil. The idea would be you, you just retaliate. You stoop to that level. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. And I remind you again, that, that's sub-Christian. And not only that, as soon as you try to execute justice yourself, it is evil because now you've climbed up the ladder and you're playing God. That's what God does. He goes on to say, but overcome evil with good. That's our defense. Which really isn't defense. We just try to overcome it with good which is showing fruit of the gospel. God saved me by His grace, only by His grace, through faith in His Son, only in His Son. He brought about conviction by His Holy Spirit in my heart so that I would be convicted of my sin. He brought about saving faith through the power of the Spirit. See, this is all a gift. I'm trusting in Him. He's given me all this. And so what I want to try to do is mimic that, imitate that. Now that I've experienced it, I want to try to show it to other people. It's Christian love. Changes everything. Shows the fruit of the gospel. I want to end this whole section of Scripture uh, by drawing upon the profound world of pop culture. I have somewhere in my mind, I don't know where pop culture fits into my brain mapping, um, but somewhere there's a place for pop culture. And I just can't get rid of it, so I've stopped trying. Um, trying to sanctify it maybe by using it to illustrate biblical truth. Throughout the series, I keep thinking of this song. It's a series on love. And I keep thinking this of this song, 1967. Before I was even born, I was born in 69, 1967. Beatles song. John Lennon, Paul McCartney wrote it. How does it go? All you need is love, right? Now you're going to think about it all day. I just keep thinking about this song, and I'm thinking, I don't know where I'm going to fit that into my sermon series because it doesn't really fit. So I haven't. Last chance. I'm going for it. Because it actually illustrates the point rather 
profoundly. Just a little bit of history about the song. It was first performed on something called Our World, the first live global television link watched by 400 million people in 26 countries. It was broadcast via satellite on June 25, 1967. The world's getting together, global satellite. And Britain's contribution, the BBC, our contribution, they say, is going to be the Beatles song, performed, All You Need Is Love. Because our world is a mess, we have all of this conflict, wars, troubles, what one message could we send that would transform all, the culture, transform all the different cultures? Let's have the Beatles sing, All You Need Is Love. That's what happened in 1967. Now you tell me, did it work? Here we are, 43 years later, and uh, that solved all the problems. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, it didn't really work. Just telling people that they just need to love doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. It doesn't work in this setting. It didn't work on a global setting back when it was done. And I need to tell you why. In one sense, it was profound what they said. They didn't know what they were saying, but it was profound. God summarizes His law. God summarizes His law by saying, Love. It's the summary of the law. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Flowing from that, love your neighbor as yourself. That's good. The law is good. That's, that's, that's right, because there's this amazing creator God, and we should treat him like he's this amazing creator God. We should love God and then love other people as a result. Love. It's a summary of the law. But it doesn't work, because... Again, we're rebels deep down inside. The Bible calls it sin. So for John Lennon and the boys, and for the UK backing to say, we have one message for the world, it's going to solve all the problems, not that they thought they were that naive. All you need is love. There's no hope in that because of sin. And if I just keep telling you, all you need is love. Let me give you ways you can love each other. And that's all I do. There's no hope in that. Because what we need is someone to love us first. We need God to love us first, like it says, 1 John, to initiate a relationship with us, to reconcile us to Himself, so that as a result of that, we will love. makes it two totally different religions. Christians, please, if you're a Christian, love. Love because God loved you first. Love because of the gospel. Love in response to the gospel. Read Romans 1 to 11, then read Romans 12. Understand the gospel, then love. And it will make a huge impact. But I can't say, only read Romans 12, love. Because you'll just be frustrated. Because you won't understand the gospel first. And if you don't understand the gospel, you don't have any Holy Spirit indwelling you, empowering you, because that is tied to the gospel as well. And so I'm just giving you 
legalism. Amazing. John Lennon is probably turning over in his grave, if that were possible, to think that I accused him of preaching law. (laughs) But he was. We need Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. First. And then we move on from there. So be careful what you say and how you think about Christian love. Don't join that chorus that started in 1967. Oh, it started way before then. That actually is just frustrating, powerless, debilitating, legalistic. Join the chorus that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then we love as a result of that, and it is entirely and totally different. So let's make a pact with each other that we will keep reminding each other of the power of the gospel, God's love for us in Christ when we were not lovely, and then and only then, having been very deliberate about that, we will then say, let's love each other. Let's love each other. Let's love our enemies. And then things will be different. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to study the scriptures together, to work through these passages together, to be challenged about uh, the need to try to implement and and copy and imitate your love that you've shown for us. We're grateful. We're grateful for these clear words. We're grateful that they come to us in the context of your great gospel love. And Lord, I would ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to bring conviction to our hearts and you would use your Holy Spirit to drive us again and again and again back to the good news of what Christ has done And then you would use your spirit to bring about the self-control that we would need to not seek justice ourselves, that you would work mightily in us in that way, and that you would do these things for our good, for the good of our families, for the good of this church, for the good of this world. And ultimately, you would do this for the fame of your name as this great, great, gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen.